0: But let me just review uh, to catch us up because one of the, you know, as you open your Bible to the book of Psalms, usually most King James Bibles are printed in verse order, meaning uh, each verse is its own paragraph. And so goes verse by verse, and that is really good from the standpoint of the idea that every word of God is important, and we're looking at the Word of God in our language, and so we focus on what is actually being said. Um, you know, a lot of Bibles today have um, started being printed in paragraph format. They look more like a regular book to read, and you know, and that's fine too. Uh, but some Bibles and some King James Bibles, you'll notice when you open to the Book of Psalms, it it looks like it's printed um, in terms of poetry, because it's not just each verse being its own paragraph, but it will have, it'll be lined out line by line, and so it looks more poetic. And yet, it's confusing to us because we feel like poetry has to rhyme. So it has to rhyme at the end, and it has certain meter that it goes through. And it, so it looks odd because it looks to us that, like the book of Psalms, is not that way. So how is it? Well, how we learn from it because it is, it, it is not rhyming poetry, it is parallelism. And we talked about the different types and gave you examples because God teaches the same way that we learn, which means that he teaches through contrast, comparison, and repetition. So some of the poetry is synonymous poetry, meaning it's, it's reiterating the same idea. Comparison, some is antithetic antithetic parallelism and so that means it's giving us a contrast and we and again we went through specific examples of this some is synthetic and it's you know it's drawn stuff together so okay parallelism and then we also talked about the fact that there are nine acrostic psalms in the book of psalms some of those are perfect acrostics and some of those are imperfect because they drop a letter and whenever a letter is missed in the Hebrew alphabet as they go through the acrostic um, that 's not a mistake that 's there to tell you something and as as the Jews would look at their Bible, as they would look at the Torah as they would which is the first five books of Moses, as they would look at the Tanakh, which is the entire uh, Old Testament from them for them, and as they would come to the psalms or any other place where a letter is dropped they know that god is trying to say something special there they just got to find out what it is so they're looking for what it is and we talked about particularly some of the imperfect acrostics and uh, psalm uh, psalm 9 and 10 is a good example because the hebrew alphabet runs through both of those psalms so those two psalms are tied together but it drops some of the letters because it is describing what I would call a broken acrostic time. And those times in your life when you can't make sense because you don't have all the pieces. So what are you going to do? So those ta- Psalms that are like that address those particular times. So we talked about acrostics and how's truth transferred? Well, this is where we left off last time. It's transferred through pictures. Pictures. And we talked about the different types of pictures in the Psalms. We're not finished with that, so we'll finish that up right now real quick. But we did talk about a simile, which is a comparison based on a resemblance. And it always uses the words like or as. And so Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So that is a simile. Uh, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. That's a picture. And then, secondly, a hyperbole, where you say something more than what is literally meant, so you're exaggerating for effect. So, Psalm 6, verse 6 is a good example. I'm weary with my groaning. All the night I make my bed to swim. Which means, you know, crying so much, it's like he's crying so much his bed is floating. He's about to float to you know about to float away on his bed because uh, you know of, of the tears and how much he's cried that's hyperbole. then there is personification we see that in psalm thirty five uh, where you attribute intelligence to inanimate objects or sometimes to uh, to abstract ideas so psalm thirty five ten all my bones shall say, Lord who is like unto thee well our bones don't speak, but we speak and we make feel like we are speaking from that very center of our being then letter d was synecdoche psalm 52 verse 4 and that's where part of one thing is used to represent the whole thing or a whole big thing is used to represent the part so um you know if the chiefs win we will say we won because they kind of represent us and psalm 52 4 thou lovest all devouring words oh thou deceitful tongue well well it's not the tongue that loves it but the tongue is being used to represent the person who loves and uses deceitful speaking then there's allegories psalm 80 that's where you describe something under the name of some other thing. So, Psalm 80, verses 14 and 15. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, behold, visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. So, Israel is pictured often in the Old Testament as a vine, and the nation as a vineyard. Then we talked about metaphor, Psalm 84, verse 11, which is a comparison based on things that resemble each other. Psalm eighty four eleven, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Another one is apostrophe. If you look at Psalm 114, Psalm 114, verse 5, sometimes an inanimate person that's not present is addressed O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Um, O rose, how sweet you smell and how bright you look. Psalm 128, uh, uh, verse 2, also, the next one is metonymy, which is one word substituted for another. Based on the relationship they have, Psalm 128, verse 2, for thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Eat the labor of thine hands. Well, I'm not exactly, but but okay, sort of. Um, if we say, okay, I'm going to the boats, well, what you mean is you're either going to eat at the buffet or you're going gambling. I'm going to the boats. You don't eat the labor of your hands, but you eat the harvest that your labor has produced. And so why do we have figures of speech Because the Bible is poetry, and those pictures enhance the vividness of the thing that we sing. So particularly in psalmody and hymnody, we use this a lot of time, even in songs that we sing today. So the last thing before we get into Psalm 2 together, how is the book of Psalms structured and so I've given you a couple of charts, a couple of charts tonight, and that's on the front side of your handout sheet, because actually the book of Psalms is made up of five separate books, five discrete books. We'll see that as we go through some of them together and, and we get to the spot where they end, because they typically always end with, um, with kind of a doxology and benediction. And as a matter of fact, at at the end of Psalm 42, it says, you know, here the prayers of David are ended. So that was one book of its own. And then Psalms 42 to 43 to 72, that's another one. most of those are by Korah, sons of Korah. And then Psalms 73 to 89, most of those are by Asaph. Psalm 90 to 106, most of those are what we call orphan Psalms because we don't know who the author was. And then finally, it concludes Psalms 107 to 150, and most of those are by David. And what you discover when you look at the Psalms in those five separate components is how your Bible is based on a pattern that starts at the very beginning. And so at the very beginning of your Bible, a pattern is laid out through the first five books, which were all by Moses. And you have a Genesis type of theme, and then it goes into an Exodus type of struggle. And then there's a Leviticus type of intimacy and way to connect with God. And then there's a Numbers type of wilderness. And then there's a Deuteronomy type of returning you back back to the word of God and and to the law and so as you look at the five books and psalms really amazing thing but it follows that same pattern and so we have drawn out for you in that first chart some of these similarities in themes between any one of the given first five books and the particular book that that it lines up with in the book of psalms the second chart is the ABCs or the ABCDEFs of the book of Psalms the name Psalms means praises so a the author David B, the background now so let me say this about the background because there's a couple of uh, I think there's a couple of blanks for you to fill in right there So, uh, God and the Word of God, and God and the Word of God, and when John gets down to writing his gospel, that is done completely after the temple's been destroyed, and God has totally made the transition from Israel to the church. And so now, uh, God is kind of done with Israel, I mean, they were offered opportunities throughout the book of acts and in everything they just you know rejected it and turned it around and so god's okay here's a mystery i've been hiding all along i knew it was going to get to this and the mystery is the church as the body of christ and us as believers being part of that body and that body being made up of both jew and gentile of 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 bond and free of male and female and we and we all function as members of this one body together during this particular dispensation before God returns to dealing back with Israel again. and so, okay, so we've got you know that's kind of an interesting thing. God and the Word of God, John writes after the, t- the change has been made, So now when he talks about Jesus, and he starts in John chapter one, he does not give. A physical genealogy i mean matthew did that and he listed a genealogy that started with abraham because he's the first hebrew and luke did that and he gives a genealogy that goes all the way back to adam because he's the first man and mark didn't do that because mark is showing jesus as the servant of the lord and servants don't have genealogies But when it comes to the gospel of John, okay, John kind of does a genealogy, but his genealogy is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow, okay. And then we look down at verse 14 of John chapter 1, so that we know how to interpret what he's saying, and we know that the Word is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus when he says that but yet he doesn't say in the beginning was jesus he says in the beginning it was the word and you you kind of just got to deal with exactly what it says so you've got god you've got the word of god and i know that i can take my bible and i can tear it up and i can't tear up god and i know i can take my bible and i can burn it and i cannot burn god and yet God and the word of God share attributes together. So what's what's the thing that makes God God? Well, well, what's his name? His name is I Am. Because he is past, present, and future all at once. If you want a fourth dimension, that is it. Okay, So we live in a three-dimensional world plus space-time. Well, God stands outside all of that. So God is like, God is like present in, in every dimension at the same time and every tense, past tense, present tense, future chance, tense. God is, God is consistently there throughout all of it at once at the same time. And that's what makes God God. Okay, well, how do I know that the Bible is the word of God? Because it is past it is present and its future all at once. Now, what that means is there are three simultaneous applications to every verse of scripture, three simultaneous applications to every chapter, to every book, three simultaneous applications. There's a past historical application. There is a present inspirational or devotional application for us. There is a future you know, I, I suppose we like to refer to it as prophetic application. So each verse has those three simultaneous views. They're all doctrinal in a sense, but one's past, one present. Okay, so if I take the book of Psalms and if I'm going to give you the B of the book of Psalms, the background, the context, well, historically... It is the songs of the saints. And songs is the word that goes in the blank. So past, it is the songs of the saints because it is the hymn book of the Hebrews. Doctrinally, so future, meaning a future prophetic application, it's not just the songs of the saints. It's a song of millennial saints. It is millennial praises. And it is what we and they will be able to sing for a thousand years in the millennium. Because regardless of who we are, whether it's, it is Jew, Gentile, or church, we have all gone through these same things together. And we all owe God the glory in the same way. We all owe Jesus praise in the same way. So in a it will in the future it will be millennial praises in the and the a hymn book of the saints for the millennium, inspirationally or present tense application. Praise God and everything brightens. Now I, I, you know that's worded a little weaker than I, I suppose I should really say it because there is an absolutely powerful, potent function to praise. In your life, it is because we ignore it and because we don't use it that we end up so much emotionally, psychologically, mentally, in depression, in anxiety. And it is because we do not praise. I'm just saying. You know, my favorite preacher is Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, and he was a Baptist pastor in London in the last half of the 1800s. And uh, he wrote about 200 books of his own. And uh, he preached, he preached in, in the years that he preached, they assembled 63 volumes of his sermons. There's like 3,600 sermons in print. Uh, if you read one a night, it'd take you 10 years to get through all of them. So, okay, so what happens is today you will notice that there are publishing houses and people who will take, they will take selectively, since he preached so much, They'll take certain topics of what he preached on and they'll, you know, update the language and put it in one book and, and sell it. And uh, that's a good thing to do. I have a lot of those also. I was just at uh, Mardell this last week and not for anything in particular, uh, but kind of killing some time. And so I was looking around and, you know, I always like while while I'm there uh, in an actually brick and mortar uh, Christian bookstore, I say, OK, well, you know, what are they selling in terms of Bibles today? So okay, we've got uh, 10 cases of Bibles, uh, two of them are King James. And okay, that's kind of interesting and they, you know, they got a section for this and a section for that and uh, you know, I have to say most of the King James Bibles, uh, you know, I look through I'm pretty disappointed with. It is so hard anymore to find a King James Bible with center column references, which I think is the best thing to have in the world. That's what you need. But they're, you know, they just, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, uh, okay, so I'm looking around at other stuff and went by a preaching sal- shelf, since, you know, I like to make myself a better preacher, I figure by walking walking by the shelf, some of that will just be imbibed, just by walking, walking next to it. But I noticed that Hendrix Publishers ha- has these little... Uh, booklets of sermons of Charles Spurgeon Spurgeon sermons so sermons on revival for example and it has I don't know a dozen or more of his sermons in I don't know 150 page book and uh, so there there were several in there they have a whole uh, uh, Hendrickson is right now publishing a whole group of Uh, titles Uh, they had maybe four or five of them there and I was looking through those but there's another title I got one time and it was called the power of praise Charles Spurgeon on the power of praise I don't know that that's still in print but if you can find it any place you should get it uh, because it's fantastic because you know it's just the times that Spurgeon preached on praise lifting it out of out of the bible lifting that topic out of certain texts and saying okay look at what it accomplishes in your life the power of praise we we have missed that uh and it's not just if you praise god your day brightens up no if i mean if you praise god there're significant things done for you done in those who hear you, maybe your family, uh, done against the devil. And we uh, pretty much totally ignore that, I think, today, and uh, we would do well to get back to it. How is Christ seen in the book of Psalms? He's seen as the blessed one. Psalm seventy-two seventeen. he is seen as our all in all, which uh, is how Colossians tells us to uh, look for him. So D, letter D, description, there are 150 chapters, 2,461. Verses, 43,743 words, and it would take you about five and a half hours to read through the book of Psalms straight through. Era, now we talked about that a little bit in previous weeks. The oldest psalm is by Moses, so written about 1490 B.C. The youngest one, the most recent one, perhaps even Psalm 1, right at the front end and uh, probably Ezra stuck it there and uh, that would have been about 444 BC just some basic factoids the theme is praise through prayer or praying through praise however you want to look at it the key verse I'll say for the entire book psalm 29 verse 2 the key word obviously is praise it's used over 150 times So now join me in uh, moments we have left at uh, Psalm 2. Join me at Psalm 2. Psalm 1 we saw predicting the moral glory of Christ at his first coming. So because it talked about the blessed man, and that blessed man is Jesus. Psalm 2 kind of foretells the millennial glory of Christ at his second coming. And we mentioned last time, two weeks ago, how Psalm 2 is one of the nine major psalms we call messianic psalms, or psalms about the Messiah, who is Jesus. So the blessed man of Psalm 1 and the anointed king of Psalm 2 are both the same person. Uh, We talked about how this psalm breaks down, and there are four speakers in Psalm 2. There is the psalmist David. He's talking in verses 1 to 3. There's God the Father. He's speaking in verses 4 to 6. There is the Son who also talks in verses 7 to 9, and then the Holy Spirit speaks to close it out, verses 10 to 12. All of the conditions necessary for the second coming of Christ... We're in place by Acts chapter 3. That is why on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, You know, the stuff that you're seeing here, you're you're listening to us speak in tongues and tell you that God did this thing with Jesus and he's now raised from the dead. Oh, and as a matter of fact, he ascended back to the Father on the right hand of the Father. And yet he's coming again. Okay, you're hearing us tell you that in your heart, tongue, even though we ignorant Galileans do not know those languages. So so you're seeing that. And wait, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Because Joel said, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord come, i.e. the second coming before that happens here's what you should expect to see and he lists some things there so really there was nothing else needed for the second coming of Christ it could have happened right there it would have been fine it wouldn't have violated any part of the bible already given to that point but of course the jewish leaders still did not you know receive and believe so we've got the messianic psalms the psalms of the messiah and we talked last time about how how they tell us uh, that we are looking for christ for the second coming they tell us in advance the scenes that we should see falling into place before the second coming of christ so that's that's what these nine particular psalms are good for the necessary compatibility we are to have with Christ in suffering, in the fellowship of his sufferings, so that we may know him. Now, you accept him, you receive him, you get saved. But you don't know him just because you got saved. And you can read the Bible, and you can read the Gospels, and you learn a lot about Christ obviously from the gospels but you don't know him you know what he said and you know what he did but you still don't know him how do we know him well you know him when you're willing to suffer like him for the same thing so when you are willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom in other words you're suffering in ministry you're suffering for the lord you're suffering for responding to the call, you're suffering for being consecrated, that is when you begin to know him. And so we get that, and then now we were looking at Psalm 2 together. I think we made it, well, I think we made it to verse 1, actually, last time. So, so it's talking about first God's guilty subjects, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says, Why do the heathen rage? And when you and we've talked about how when you trace that to the margin of your King James Bible, you see how the James gang tells you that could also be translated. Or why do the heathen tumultuously assemble? You know, I like that. Uh, you know, commercial for the uh, credit card, and you know he's yelling at all his neighbors. You need to get this credit card because you get so much percentage back you know we we say we're a not not a corrupt society <laughs> but but here use my credit card I'll give you a kickback so you know he's telling all his neighbors you need to get this credit card and he yells at his neighbor that's right next door and the neighbor right next door says dude I'm standing right here why are you yelling he says because that's what I do well okay this is what the Gentiles do I mean this is just what we do uh, we we get paranoid, and in our paranoia, we plot to perform a premeditated crime. In this case, in this case, it's talking about the nations of the world getting together in a premeditated crime against God. They already had a premeditated crime against Christ, and they crucified him. But now we're talking about a second coming context. We're talking about a tribulation context. We're talking, you know, it's telling us something about the coming of the Messiah, and and, and the little shades of what we see the nations doing. The, you know, what we okay uh, this last week, Glasgow, Glasgow, Scotland. So what's going on in Glasgow? You say, well, COP twenty six, what whatever that is. I mean, it's a climate climate thing all the nations 26 nations getting together to make commitments and to talk about how we're going to stop global warming and 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 so that's what's happening in Glasgow well that's not all that's happening in Glasgow every day there are tumultuous assemblies in Glasgow for people who say we're not going far enough or people who say look you know you can't go that far it's going to gonna hurt us economically uh okay those are things that we know are going to shift into place right into is going to fit right into spot for the second coming of christ only this time they're going to be united against the idea of god So now I'm going to pick it up there from last time. And what we see, secondly, so letter A, their rebellion is formal. That's verse 1. Secondly, letter B, their rebellion is forceful. That is verse 2. And I want you to notice the various conspirators because God practically gives you a CNN interview here or a uh, PBS documentary here. Uh, Kind of an ESPN event summary here. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. So you've got the heathen, the people, verse 1, but then you've got the kings, their rulers, their presidents, their prime ministers, verse 2. Now, what I'm going to say is this, because we go through these cycles in America as, you know, that's just kind of baked into our bones as Americans. We will go through certain cycles of um, uh, either uh, very patriotic or very distrustful of our government, or sometimes the two of those go together. Now, that's happened ever since George Washington was a pup. Because when George Washington was president, you had the whiskey rebellion, of all things. And there was a whiskey rebellion because Americans believed there was a conspiracy on the part of um, Washington and the rest of the Illuminati regarding taxing them and taking away their freedom because now we're going to tax whiskey. Uh, you know, so, I mean, ever since then. And, uh, and it, it has cropped up, you know, uh, I mean, I can um, think back um, uh, probably shortly uh, before I was born, or maybe when I was really, really young kid, uh, the conspiracy was fluoride in the water. And fluoride in the water, uh, which we all have, and nobody... Makes any d- big deal about it today, but we drink fluoridated water, and, uh, you know, there were, everything was related to that. I mean, I think, I, think, I think because of polio and because of the way it hit children and because of the fact that they ended up in iron lungs, uh, nobody really had a problem with polio vaccines, but fluoridated water and I mean it's just this just okay so that's always out there that that's baked in our bones I'm going to say as Americans but you'll notice here what we're seeing in this second verse first and second verse is the bible is defining politics for us because it talks about the heathen the people themselves And it talks about the rulers, the kings themselves, and that is all you need to know about the conspiracy. It's not the Rothschilds and the Jews. It is not the Bilderbergers and the Illuminati. It is—it's pretty much everyone you know, see, like, and follow on Meta or whatever Facebook has become. Now that's what scares me. So it's not just Facebook anymore. It's meta because they're wanting to draw you into the metaverse. Now, the metaverse, uh, like the universe, um, happens to be a certain um, digital construct that you can get into with, um, you know, goggles and software. And, uh, you know, if you happen to use those now, you know it's an amazing thing. You can uh, create yourself as any type of avatar you would like, so you can kind of look how you want to look, be who you want to be, and join any number of communities. And I I know that part of it is innocent gaming and uh, so forth. Okay. But you know that's not all there is that is available on there, Okay, so the you know the the I th- the great conspiracy, the cabal, is kind of like us. I mean, it's kind, it's kind of the heathen, the people, and and their rulers. So watch, this is this is our first point for study. The great conspiracy is not something imposed on the masses by the masters of the world. And all I'm doing is using the Bible to define not only history but current uh, current. Uh, political science the great conspiracy is a popular movement that embraces nations peoples presidents and governments Uh, as a matter of fact there is one of the seven mysteries in the bible that defines for you exactly who the great cabal is and um, you know we go through the mysteries, seven mysteries in our discipleship two class. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into that here. But that the great cabal is mystery Babylon. Uh, so anyone you know who tries to get you into something else besides that is just kind of leading you astray on what the real problem is. So what does this great commit myst- uh what does this great conspiracy, what, is it, what does this great cabal do? Well, first, the Bible tells us it imagines and meditates and plans on how they will get the world to work without God. How are they going to get the world to work without God? Now, you know, we've been at that a long time, too. Uh, probably ever since the original... Babylon but we've you know we've been at that and it's gone back and forth and um, you know we have a um, a lot of the demonstrations or demonstrators or a lot of the people talking about it Uh, you know it's um, here in America because uh, we think we are capitalists at least then the enemy always has to be Marxist well okay well okay What, what was Marxism well all it was 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 a way to tell the world how to get it to work without god now it's so totally failed so totally completely failed that something and somebody else is going to have to come along and resurrect that idea of how we're going to get the world to work without god and uh so, yeah, maybe it's the Marxists who are atheists by definition, because by definition they're telling you how to get the world to work without God. But I think it's not, not just that. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I, you know we're, we're looking for pieces to fall into place. Looking for pieces to fall into place. So now, what is the second thing that they do? Okay, so I think, that, I think the conspiracy is exactly what the Bible says it is. Basically, the cabal is Mystery Babylon, um, which will be the most unconspiratorial and brazen in the tribulation period itself. So, what's the second thing they do? Verse 2 The kings of the earth set themselves. Now, literally, that means they take a stand. They take a stand and they decide they've had enough not only have they had enough of trusting God for anything, they have had enough of anybody else trusting God for anything. So much so that verse 2 says, the rulers take counsel together. Now, if you were to do a word study on that, which is uh, you know another um, how to study your Bible technique that we also go through in discipleship too, but if you were to do a word study, you would find out that that means they gather together by appointment. They, I mean, just like they're doing today for other things, economics, the G20, climate, the, um, the, the COP26, uh, whatever it is. Uh, and so, okay, when you let the Bible define your news network and let the Bible show you what's going on, you, what you find out is that the conspiracy is not a conspiracy anymore well there 's too many people for it to be a conspiracy i mean if it 's a conspiracy it 's kind of an open conspiracy because there 's too many people in it for for it to be okay well it 's a conspiracy and second, they meet at appointed times they put out press releases, whether that 's the u n the g seven the g eight the g twenty nato a c n which is the asian pacific group of nations and every one of our presidents uh, of either one of our parties is part of each one of those things the C- cfr the council on foreign relations p- publishes a whole journal on foreign affairs t- i mean the conspiracy's kind of out in the open I-, I mean it's amazing what the bible what a king james bible will do for you in lowering the anxiety about who wins and who loses and what is happening in the world. And the force of their rebellion is right here in verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed. Now the Lord is God the Father. His anointed is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because Christ or Messiah is the Hebrew word that is translated anointed. So check, just check this before we move on. It doesn't matter the political party in America. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I've always only been never, you know, nothing more than an independent. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've ever voted a straight party ticket for anybody's party. I mean, I may have ended up voting Uh, all the same party I don't know but uh, you know I'm going to look at each one and I'm going to vote individual on each one well I kind of have a Will Rogers view of politics now this is just me I mean part of it is um as a pastor I'm apolitical because soon as you know if I take a political stance I've alienated half half of my congregation well that ain't going to happen because the gospel's too important but okay, yeah, I, you know, if, if anything, I'm a Will Rogers type of, type of stance on politics. Will Rogers said, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. He says, you know, there's only one redeeming thing about this whole election. It'll be over at sundown. One of the evils of democracy if you, is you have to put up with the man you elected whether you want him or not. If you ever injected truth into politics, you'd have no politics. America has the best politicians money can buy. I mean, he was a humorist, right? These are funny things. But that's my stance. I'm just a Will Rogers, you know, on politics because uh, he's a humorist. And that's, it's like, I, you know, I know it's serious. And, you know, vote my conscience and, and vote the Bible as far as that goes. But wow, it is... He gets out there, and it's like, you know, he, he, he says all of these things that are so funny, I think, man, no, that's kinda, I kind of track with that. I'm feeling him on that. But the, at the bottom line, everyone except the Bible believer is part of this conspiracy. That is what you need to know, because our job is to lift people out of the fire. And rescue them from the conspiracy. So it doesn't matter, at the bottom line, it doesn't matter political system, capitalist or communist, doesn't matter the economic theories, doesn't matter the social structures, doesn't matter about educational goals, does not matter about government programs, does not matter about what's going to be spent, where and how. Everyone except Bible believers are part of the conspiracy and our job is to get people into a new kingdom with a new king. Because we are content with the rule of Jehovah Jesus. Content with it now in our own lives and content with the way that it is coming as the kingdom of heaven. So, so let her see. Third, their rebellion is focused. Look at verse 3. It is focused. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now, who are they talking about? Well, certainly in the future prophetic context, they are imbibing the same conspiracy against the Jews as what is out there today. Well, you know, the Jews, they run the... They run the media. The Jews, they run the economy. The Jews, they own the banks. But uh, for us today, let me apply it this way. They're looking at Judeo-Christian ethics and morality. Man, that's confining. What do you mean I have to be the same gender as my actual sex? What sex I am. That's confining. I mean, that ethic has no place today. We've, We've... we're civilized now we've gone beyond that and you are too intolerant for me and my immorality uh so uh, so let's break their bands asunder let's cast away their cords from us let's get rid of the jews because they're holding us back let's persecute and let's get rid of christianity i mean let's just get rid of christianity and again, all I'm saying is these particular psalms, Messianic psalms, are showing us the pieces that are sliding into place before the second coming. Because obviously, you know, obviously if, if Christians look at it and say, well, you know, I, you know, I don't know that you can't say that the fetus is not a human being. Well lost people are just not they 're not in a mood to accept that, so they don't they don't want a stop at six weeks they don't really want to stop at fifteen weeks i i don 't know if they want a stop uh, and uh, at any rate you know the you know it's so it 's the Christians holding us back in those those type of areas right now. God has a restraint upon the world. This is what Paul tells us in Thessalonians. Right now, the Holy Spirit is holding back the revelation of the man of sin. Right now, the church is still present. The rapture's not taking place. And I know the Holy Spirit is never totally gone. But you know what? Once the church is gone, the Holy Spirit is back to an Old Testament style of operation so the holy spirit which is in believers is removed and that's going to make it totally different right now there's kind of a restraint right now we can kind of prevent some things from going on you know right now it's a balancing force right now we can you know totally you know keep it from totally going the way it shouldn't go Right now, they are not able to bring in a kingdom without Christ. But when we are out, and in that sense, the Holy Spirit in us is removed, they will be able to bring in a kingdom with an antichrist. But their rebellion has kind of a twofold focus. First, against the hated person of God. Look at verse 2 again. So they are rebelling against the Lord and against his anointed. It is against Jehovah, as he is known to the Jews. So that's the word translated, Lord. And it is against Christ, as he is known to the Christians. So Satan hates both Judaism and Jews and Israel and also hates Bible Christianity. He's made his accommodation. Uh, When we're talking about Mystery Babylon, um, the devil, at least for the moment, has made his accommodation with the woman that rides the beast. The imperial church uh, that, uh, you know, existed after Constantine. Uh, But he still hates Bible Christianity and Christians because it is both the Jewish Old Testament and the Christian New Testament that reveals who he is to the lost. So he hates us. Let me just also say, because there is this wrinkle out there in evangelicaldom today, within... The broader evangelical movement, there are certain uh, leaders uh, who would say they are born again uh, in certain segments that are are not just pro-Palestinian, they're really kind of anti-Semitic. And also the whole reformed wing, reformed theology says that the church has replaced Israel. Israel is not Israel. We don't need Israel now. Uh, uh, and i'm just saying that is uh boy i don't go there uh don't go there at all but if you're following anyone who is in any way anti-semitic you're just doing the devil's work i don't know what else to tell you uh and and that particular pro-palestinian anti-zionist position is getting more and more popular i mean the bible answer man uh, is this way. Uh, uh, so it's in evangelical, even in some of Baptisthood. So second, so first it's against the hated person of God, second, against the hated precepts of God, verse three let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us, because bands and cords are how they view what we preach every Sunday. It's how they view the Bible. It's how they view what we teach. It it is shackles and chains if I cannot choose my own gender. I need to throw off the bondage of defense, of marriage, of sexual purity, of respect, of authority, and therefore throw off the bondage about sin, salvation, and judgment. So Freud said, if you're psychotic, it's because of guilt. Let's get rid of guilt. Whatever happened to sin? Let's get rid of guilt, and you won't be psychotic. Well, how's that working for you? I think it's kind of not worked for us very well. And God is doing a thing, so I don't I don't blame any person particularly or party particularly because God's doing a thing and allowing a thing. But you know, we do have good otherwise good-hearted people that really facilitate things that end up destroying our society and it and and okay that's gonna that will come back to haunt us as time goes on but that is the mentality let's throw off the bands and the cords of this puritan view and lifestyle and uh you know let's just uh, let's just set it up and uh, you know the European way to think today so we're usually 20 to 30 years behind Europe but the European way to think is what you know what I really have to get rid of I have to get rid of family I have to get rid of marriage and I have to get rid of family and we don't need that and what we need, and I don't know that this is Marxism because it's not framed in, an, in terms of an economic system, but what we need is, you know we, need, we know, we know what needs to be taught to kids. We need the government taken over. We don't need marriage. We don't need family. We just need to set up a way that we're going to make the world work without God. So this is our second point for study. What we observe today is a focused rebellion getting the world ready for the final rebellion against God. I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing. Okay, so we, we go to 645, is that right? So in the few minutes we have left, uh, turn to Acts chapter 24, keep your finger here the psalmist shows us a world he shows he holds up a mirror to what we're living in right now and he shows us a world that is rejecting the wooings of god not wanting to admit the warnings of god who should you be in the midst of this world right now in our land well i can show you exactly from a king james bible watch acts chapter 24 look at verse 24 and after certain days when felix came with his wife drusilla which was a jewess he sent for paul who was being held in imprisoned at that moment in caesarea he sent for paul and heard him concerning the faith in christ and as Paul reasoned of righteousness temperance and judgment to come now you know Felix didn't write that verse because he would say stop preaching at me you're not reasoning with me you're preaching at me because that's always the way the unsaved world views it it's not that it's not that bible principles are good it's not that they make sense it's not that You know, it's positive and builds you up and brings blessing. It's, oh, stop preaching at me. But in in actual fact, all Paul was doing with him, he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. So much so, it says, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I'll call for thee. I wish that season had come. There is no record in the book of Acts that that season ever came. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say that Felix was promoted or left that position and somebody else came in his place. But I wish that season had come. But you know what? Even if it does not, you need to be in the right place at the right time with the right words. Do not let your life in Christ be overshadowed by anything that's happening in this world. Not by pandemic, not by politics, not by protests. You've got to be the one who is in the right place at the right time with the right words because the Holy Spirit is still here right now as the great restrainer. You need to be that one reasoning with people of righteousness temperance and judgment to come some of them will tremble and get saved some will say well it's not the right time <coughs> we don't know which ones will get saved and which ones will wait for a more convenient season so we just give it out to all of them and and that's what we do and uh Since the Holy Spirit's here as the great restrainer, then we don't have to worry about the other stuff. I mean, I just tell you what, my Messiah is not any political party, any president, any particular politician. That's not, they are not my Messiah. My trust is in the Holy Spirit of God who is still here as the great restrainer. And the best thing I can do is participate with him in getting others out of the conspiracy and into the kingdom with Christ. So having defined God's guilty human subjects, he now speaks, and this is Roman Roman numeral two, about God's great scorn. That is what we will see. We'll pick it up here next time. That is what we will see in verses four to six. So I don't know what to tell you. This is better than Sunday night football. Because <laughs> you know what we're seeing here, this would actually make a difference. If we lived by it, if we applied it, if we understood it, if we stood upon it, if we went from it. If we could if we could see the big picture, if we could place ourselves within the story, understanding that it's kind of not a conspiracy because too many people are involved in it so it is a conspiracy it's a cabal it's the it's the mystery of babylon and everybody is in it except us only the bible believing christians not in it our job has to be to get people out of that and into the kingdom of christ before he comes because he's he's the one who brings the kingdom and he, only when he comes are we going to have are we going to have a millennium So go ahead and stand and just bump elbows with your neighbor if you're standing next to somebody. Let's have a word of prayer and that way we won't make you late for uh, picking up kids that you might have uh, in Iwana. Father, I thank you tonight that we can, uh, this, you know, coming back to the book of Psalms after a couple of weeks and opening it up, it seems like the Holy Spirit just reaches out a hand and slaps us. I mean, going into Psalms at this level and in this way, it's like you're just slapping us, trying to get us to wake up. We need to be the woke people. We need to be the ones who understand that the night is far spent and the day is close at hand. We need to understand that our time is short. There's certainly a general way in which we could say of any one of us we don't know if we will live through tonight or live through tomorrow but in a very specific sense we know we are in the last days of the last times and it can't last much longer And even if it did we still we still have to act as if you are coming tonight as if you were coming this week God give us that faith Give us, uh, give, us, give us, Lord, that heart for you. Give us that understanding that even though posi- even though positions like us bring us into a, a spot of persecution or suffering or disdain, well that's where we learn who you are. That is where we know you. We don't know you through the other things. We see you, we hear you, we watch what you did. But really, we really only know you when we suffer with you. then then you are with us in such a way there is a fellowship together in those sufferings and so lord i thank you for the encouragement that that gives i thank you for the way that that ought to that ought to put a a a decision in our hearts a willingness to accept the challenge to stand up for you and to be who we are in christ and not let anyone or anything else tear that down and father i pray that Pray that this this Sunday night will be the time that just really energizes our church because of the things that we get out of it and um, the way that you treat us and deal with us here as we look through these psalms together. Lord, I ask it tonight in Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. Love you. Have a great week. You're dismissed.